According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are in the book of Isaiah, and we have arrived at the 57th chapter. Isaiah 57, continuing our study in this chapter-by-chapter survey of the major prophets. I believe we will follow, I know for a fact that we will follow Isaiah with uh, Jeremiah. At least that's the plan, Lord willing and rapture pending. That's what the intention is to do, to follow 66 weeks of Isaiah with 52 weeks of Jeremiah. After that, do we go to Ezekiel? What do we do? All right, well, Lord's in charge of that too. But for today, the righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart. That sounds pretty bad. Let's open with a word of prayer. Ask the Father to bless our time of study before we begin our time today. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do come before you thankful for your truth, thankful for your faithfulness, rejoicing, Father, that you have designed a plan whereby we can approach your throne of grace. We can study to show ourselves approved. And Father, who are we? We don't deserve this. We haven't earned or deserved being in your presence or uh, learning these things, even the deep things of God. And yet, Father, I thank you that we are here, not in our own merit, but in your merit, the merit of your Son. It is his worthiness that we come before you, and it is in his worthiness that we pray. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, we are looking at our culture today, written by the prophet Isaiah, 700 years before Christ, but here we have it. The righteous man perishes and no man takes it to heart, and devout men are taken away while no one understands. Uh, For the righteous man is taken away from evil. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. But come here, you sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion, offspring of deceit, who inflame yourselves among the oaks under every luxuriant tree, who slaughter the children in the ravines under the clefts of the crags? Among the smooth stones of of the ravine is your portion. They are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have made a grain offering. Shall I relent concerning these things? Upon a high and lofty mountain you have made your bed. You also went up there to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your sign. Indeed, far removed from me, you have uncovered yourself and have gone up and made your bed wide. And you have made an agreement for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their manhood. You have journeyed to the king with oil and increased your perfumes. You have sent your envoys a great distance and made them go down to Sheol. You were tired out by the length of your road, yet you do not, did not say, it is hopeless. You found renewed strength. Therefore, you did not faint. All right, there's half the chapter right there, the, uh, verses 1 through 10. We want to stop and make sure we're not losing the, the forest through the trees as we go through really a sad message, an unhappy message, one that applied to Israel in the day, but one that applies to us, I, th- I think, uh, quite vividly. Understand, faithful believers are removed from their society as God prepares to deliver that society over to judgment. 
It's a pattern that we have in the Scriptures. It's a pattern that we have in the Old Testament and the New Testament. We observe it in church history. When the God who is planning for the destruction of a society knows how to rescue his remnant from that society. Think about how he got Lot out of Sodom, for example. Think about how he got Daniel and Ezekiel and the, and the exiles safely to Babylon before he brings the destruction to Jerusalem. And uh, remarkably enough, the people that were left behind thought that they were the choice, uh, the choice ticket. They thought that they were the special ones. They had been saved from captivity. They even came up with a, uh, with a, pot, uh, with a uh, metaphor that said, Jerusalem is the pot and we're the meat. Okay, well, maybe it's a good thing to be meat in a meat stew, but not when that meat stew is about to get eaten. All right. And, and so it's not the remnant that was left behind in Jerusalem that was the favorite of the Lord. They had it backwards. They had it upside down. It was the captives. It was Daniel and Ezekiel and all the captives that were taken away to Babylon. They were the choice precious ones in the sight of God. They were the ones being rescued out of Jerusalem before judgment came to Jerusalem. And so we have it prophesied here by Isaiah. And uh, this is what happens. The righteous man perishes. And whose heart is broken? In our culture today, the more Christians that die off and disappear, the better it is for the unbelievers that are, that are delivering forth the message that they're delivering. You bet our culture is happy to have fewer solid Bible teachers around, and they're happy to have the liars around that seem to have preeminence these days. So the devout men are taken away while no one understands. They're clueless to the fact that God is actually diminishing the pivot. He's actually diminishing the salt and light benefit that believers have in a culture. And while they're happy to be rid of all those religious people, they're happy to have all those nasty, judgmental Christians out of their, out of their life, they don't realize that it's those very Christians they scorn that are keeping their nation free. It's the salt and light that they hate that continues to provide freedom for the land that they live in. And uh, this is what we have described here in these verses. So it says, notice the last phrase of verse 1, the righteous man is taken away from evil. You know, and in some respects, that's a great blessing. God is merciful. He is absolutely merciful. Tomorrow we're approaching the third anniversary of my mother's departure. I'm glad she isn't seeing the things we're looking at. You know, I'm glad she doesn't have to see some of this horrible stuff and what's happening in our nation and the course of of, uh, current events and the direction that it's going. And that's uh, what we see described here. The righteous man is taken away from evil. It's a rescue of his saints from the darkness that they are surrounded by. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds, each one who walked in his upright way. God is rewarding them. Well done, good and faithful servant. He's calling them home. And he's blessing them by removing them from the pending judgment that is about to come. Okay? And obviously, dispensationally, we all can look forward to this because the, the bride will be snatched out of here before the trumpet sa- or as the trumpet sounds and before hell is unleashed on this earth. The rapture of the church is definitely pre-tribulational and folks that want to argue that point are missing the entire thrust of, uh, of what Scripture is warning about. So faithful believers are removed from society as God prepares to deliver that society over judgment. Is this something to lament? Is it something to boo-hoo over and to, to ponder? Why do we have so few pastors today? Why are we seeing so many on the older end leaving their pulpits and dying and retiring and leaving ministry? And we see so few on the younger end that are stepping into you know, a brand new ordination or just stepping into their first pulpit? The numbers are staggering. 
okay? And not just in doctrinal circles. I'm talking across the board from Catholic to Protestant to Baptist to you name it. All the denominations have their seminary enrollments at an all-time low. And they're losing men at the upper end and they're not replacing them with men at the younger end. And um, even when the liberals start to try to replace them with women at the younger end, they're still not replacing the, the pulpits that need shepherds. And I believe it's the, it's the famine upon our land. It's the hand of God's discipline that's removing the truth of His Word from this land. We want to understand that for what it is too. We know it's a principle of Scripture that the righteous provide salt and the devout provide light to their communities. And I believe this is an accurate breakdown on this. We often combine salt and light. We often put them together in tandem. That you can't have salt without light. You can't have light without salt. They are placed together in Matthew chapter 5 in a context there. But here, I think we have a, a, a parallelism between the righteous and the devout. The righteous man perishes the devout men are taken away. And because the Hebrew text is putting them in a parallel tandem, I felt free to do similarly. And I'm putting these two into a tandem between the righteous and the devout and equating them with the salt and the light in a community. And I believe that's valid. Uh, The righteous uh, speaks of of positional sanctification. It speaks of being saved, of being a part of the body of Christ. And as salt, there is a preservative for the number of believers in a land. But they may not necessarily be light if those believers are not devout, if those believers are not walking in the light, if they are not disciples of the Word of God. And I think we got a significant number of born-again people in this country, but they're not disciples of the Word of God. And so there is, a sight, uh, there is a salt benefit, but not a light manifestation uh, that should go with that, because not every believer walks in the light as they're commanded to do. In any event, these are not the only passages we're looking at. In terms of Isaiah 57, verses 1 and 2, those verses don't stand by themselves. We've got plenty of other passages as well that demonstrate the benefit that believers have in their society, in their local communities, in their nations, I think in the history of human events, they're shaped by the presence of believers. Remember, Sodom wasn't destroyed because of all the evil Sodomites that were there. There were not ten righteous within the city. Ten righteous could have saved Sodom. But there was insufficient salt within Sodom. And then, interesting how salt becomes the picture there when Lot's wife turns into the, into the pillar of salt. Jeremiah 29 speaks to this. So stay tuned in about... 50 more weeks. No, let's see, we've got 12 more and no, 10 more in Isaiah and then 29 in Jeremiah. We'll get to Jeremiah 29. And here's a principle. Why are prayer meetings so important? And why, why uh, does 1 Timothy tell us to be praying for kings and all who are in authority? Jeremiah 27, when they were being sent to captivity, they were being sent there for their blessing, for their preservation, for God's love. And so he tells them, in fact, he writes a letter to the, to the captives. In verse 4, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles, why I have sent to, into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and become fathers of sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters and, and multiply where uh, there and do not increase." He's telling the captives to continue on with normal family life, continue on with normal bios life in, in, uh, in this uh, context, in this, in this captivity in Babylon. 
He goes on to say, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. Are we seeking the welfare of our community? Are we praying for the mayor of Austin? Are we praying for the governor of Texas? Are we praying for the president of the United States? True, genuine prayers for their blessing, not negative, hostile prayers like, Lord, get them out of there. All right, Genuine prayers saying, Lord, bless them, encourage them, teach them your word. Because uh, in its welfare, you will have welfare. Austin Bible Church benefits if the Austin economy is doing well. Austin Bible Church benefits if there's a thriving job market where the members of Austin Bible Church can, can work. All right, And if all of the, the crazy politicians want to claim credit for having a thriving economy, well, let them. We know better. All right, we know that it's salt and light in a community that provides blessings by association to that community. And so we do pray for kings and all who are in authority, that we will live a quiet and godly life, we're told. And the principle uh, is here. So there'll be, there'll be more that goes with that. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets who are in your midst and your diviners deceive you and do not listen to the dreams which they dream for they prophesy falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. You want to understand in the context of being salt and light, there's going to be false teachers out there and they're going to confuse the issue. And they're going to try to distract from the real role that we have as salt and light in our communities. And uh, it's, I find it just sad that so many believers get off target. They start volunteering for causes and crusades and missions and all kinds of stuff that have nothing to do with a purpose for the body of Christ. In fact, it takes away from the true purpose of why we're here. Psalm 12 and verse 1. Similar principle here as well. Psalm 12 and verse 1. We should learn these verses and learn these principles and then strive to be salt and light in our communities, in our workplaces, in our neighborhood. Different places where we can be blessings by association. And if we find that starts to diminish, what are you left with? <laughs> You're left with a lot of prayer requests, a lot of help, Lord. And that's what we have in Psalm 12. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of man. You know, you look around and you say, man, we got fewer pastors than we've ever had before. You know, where are these men? Where is Pastor Theme? Where is uh, Ken Jensen? Where is Glenn Carnegie? Where, where's Scotty Allen? Where, where, where's John Miller and John E. Miller? Where, where are these men? All right, why does it seem that so many have already departed and the, and the discipline upon our land is increasing? It's not a coincidence. They definitely correlate and correspond. It's a part of what God does. They speak falsehood to one another. With flat, in other words, the, the, the rabble that we have left. They speak falsehood to one another. With flattering lips and with a double heart, they speak. You know, <laughs> I'd much rather have the colonel back in his pulpit preaching truth than the entertainment we have in a basketball arena. You know what I'm saying? All right. Try to have a little code there, but you know what I'm saying? I want truth. This nation needs truth. We don't need entertainment. We don't need the flattering lips. May the Lord cut off all flattering lips. <laughs> the tongue that speaks great things. Who have said, with our tongue we will prevail. Look what we have done. To us be the glory, great things we have done. Our lips are our own. Who is Lord over us? Okay? You want to have that positive life. Well, there it is. 
Uh, so that's not Psalm 12. How about Micah? Micah 7 2. Micah's a contemporary of Isaiah. And Micah 7. So much here in Micah 7. The chapter that talks about our sins have been cast in the depths of the sea. But much earlier than that, that's the end of the chapter. Here's the early part of the chapter. Woe is me. Okay? Woe is me. How do you like to be the seemingly the last faithful prophet in town when everybody else is a bunch of false prophets and other types? Woe is me, for I am like the fruit pickers, like the grape gatherers. There is not a cluster of grapes to eat or a first ripe fig which I crave. The godly person has perished from the land, and there is no upright person among men. All of them lie in wait for bloodshed. Each of them hunts the other with a net. Concerning evil, both hands do it well. <laughs> They're ambidextrous in their, in their pursuit of, of evil. The prince asks, also the judge, for a bribe. And, and so, you know, all the complaining about corruption in government, corruption in politics, and what, that's just a reflection. That's a reflection of the soul corruption that's endemic in our society. And the great man speaks the desire of his soul, so they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright is a thorn hedge. <laughs> All right. Well, the day when you post your watchman. We saw those sleeping guard dogs last week, remember? The day when you post your watchman, your punishment will come. Then their confusion will occur. Do not trust in a neighbor because society is breaking down. Do not have confidence in a friend. They're going to betray you. It's every man for himself. From her who lies in your bosom, you know, notice I'm probably not married, but she's lying in your bosom, guard your lips. For son treats father contemptuously, daughter rises up against mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own household. Like I say, it's our culture. All right, it's where we are. So we want to be salt and light. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus speaks about this. We want to be salt and light. In fact, I see so much of Isaiah 59 in Matthew chapter 5. I wonder how, uh, you know, the, the scriptures that were on the Lord's heart as he spoke these things. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? There's a question for you. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now the whole idea that we're a light but just don't shine. Okay? You can be religious but just keep it to yourself. Right? Have whatever Bible views you have. Just keep it at home. Keep it in your churches. Don't you dare voice it in public. Okay, because we, we hold to this mythological, bastardized separation of church and state kind of thing, which says you can't offend me with your Christianity if we're in a public place. What they're saying is don't let your light shine. But we're commanded to obey the Lord. So nobody lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but they put it on the lampstand. It gives light to all that are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way. So let your salt be salty and let your light shine that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And if we no longer have the salt and light in a nation, why is there a nation? Why does God permit that nation? Why would God not bring that nation to an end and replace it? Okay, so we see it there. Meanwhile, we got these jokers left behind. The jokers left behind will find that the joke is on them. You know, they're like kids on a playground. 
wagging the lips, sticking out their tongue, making faces. You know, they did the same thing at the cross. A bunch of buffoons, okay? And they think they're the smart ones. They think they're the ones that have all the answers. These jokers that are left behind. In verses 3 and 4, we were looking at them. Uh, You sons of a sorceress, offspring of an adulterer and a prostitute, against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth? What makes funny things funny? Okay? I can't figure that out. My kids keep telling me I'm not funny. What, what, What makes funny things funny? There is funny in the universe because he who sits in the heavens laughs. God is highly amused by many things, not by them, all right? They're amused by many things. And what amuses them does not amuse God. In fact, just the opposite. It infuriates his wrath. So keep on laughing. Against whom do you jest? Against whom do you open wide your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of rebellion? You know, uh, John the Baptist called him a brood of vipers. Offspring of deceit. There's some other issues here. We're kind of short on time today, but Judges chapter 16 is interesting. Verses 25 through 27. A lot of mocking there. God will not be mocked. Do you believe that? And we we sometimes think that we can get away with it, but that's only because we're temporal creatures and for the moment, no lightning bolts have blasted us. But we don't know the eternal damage we've done in that uh, in that mocking. But anyway, Judges 16, you got Samson and here's the strongest man that ever walked the earth and they're mocking him. They're mocking him in his slavery. They're mocking him in his blindness. They put out his eyes. They're mocking him. Similar to Jesus on the cross in Matthew 27. Grab this one. Matthew 27, this addresses what we're going to have shortly in our communion service. Can you believe this? The king of the universe, the creator of the universe, the God-man as the word became flesh. And the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. After twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. They knelt down before him and mocked him. This isn't worship. How many people are filling churches today? They say they're worshiping, but this is what they're doing. They're mocking the Lord who died for them. But they kneel down before him and mock him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Verse 31, after they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off him and put his own garments back on him and led him away to be crucified. And then he's hanging on the cross. In verse 39, there's two robbers crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left, and those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads, mocking. The elders, too, in verse 41, the chief priests, some of the scribes and elders were mocking him, saying he saved others, he cannot save himself. The robbers, in verse 44, were also insulting him with the same words. One of them will repent shortly. All right, but there it is. Understand, this is endemic to our day and age. In fact, it typifies the entire uh, end times. Second Peter chapter 3. Know this first of all. Know this first of all. When the Bible says, know this first of all, <laughs> I kind of think that eschatology is important. I've met so many Christians that say they don't bother with eschatology. They just want to walk in love. Well, do that, but pay attention to eschatology and know this first of all. 
Then in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Met a man the other day who said he doesn't know about pre-trib rapture or mid-trib rapture or post-trib rapture. He doesn't know, doesn't think he can know, and he just figures, well, we'll find out when it happens. And if, uh, if the rapture comes before the tribulation, I'll be really happy on my way up. And uh, if we have to go through the tribulation and the rapture hasn't happened yet, then, well, my Lord will be faithful. He'll see me through it. And I thought, how sad. Know this first of all, that mockers will come with their mocking. All right, know what the promises are. The promises are for us. We're to have our hope fixed on the promises. All right, because according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. See, this chapter takes us there, shows us why eschatology is vital. I think without the right eschatology, believers become saltless. We lose our salt and our light. You know, the godless culture fornicates to the point of exhaustion. <laughs> they find ways to push it even further. You know, and, and think about it. I mean, just, it's, uh, it's even a, a blasphemous uh, counterfeit for those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. How does the sinner find ways to run and not grow weary? Well, they grow weary and then they claim they're not. And then they find other ways to keep pushing on even in their weariness. They find ways to continue on even in their judgment. And so here's wrath upon them and they find ways, well, we can keep doing this. We're having fun. Anyway, this is kind of um, explicit in these verses and you wouldn't want to preach it with kids in the room, but um, there's a lot of... uh, explicit sexual things that are going on in this chapter and yet they continually endure they continually keep pushing on and even though they grow tired so uh we see what they're doing there let me get back to where i should be here verses five through ten you know the uh you were tired out by the length of your road well what are we going to do then what kind of stimulants can we use to keep this party going What kind of uh, chemicals might keep uh, additional activity ongoing? All right. And I'm not content with the volume of my fornication, so let's find a way to have even more. So, you were tired out by the length of your road, yet you did not say it is hopeless. You know, if you think about it, the hardness of heart and the tragic unbeliever that's just bound and determined to find some kind of answers, not from the Bible, of course, that's the last place they're going to look, but think about... They will never, ever, ever admit that what they're doing is a problem or what they're doing is wrong or sin or whatever. They've got to find some way to keep doing it. So you found renewed, you didn't say it is hopeless, you found renewed strength. Therefore, you did not faint. And they continue on in these realms of darkness. There's not a, there's not a bed they haven't jumped into, you know, as you read through these verses. They've been posting signs, <laughs> you know. What happens with a culture when our sin is out in the open? When it's not even spoken of in shame? When it's celebrated? Well, the day and age in which we live. Obviously, the rapture of the church is going to illustrate these principles on a global scale. This world is going to find out what salt and light blessings truly have been all this time when the body of Christ is removed. 
this world will find out when the restraint is lifted, when Satan has free reign to launch his program, this world will observe how merciful God has been and how grace has shown upon them despite their hatred of it. Imagine a planet with no believers on it. I know it seems like we're getting there, all right? There's a, there's a you know, I'm not preaching to this choir, but there's a, there's a remnant, there's a handful of, of uh, true believers, true disciples, true salt and light, but it's getting further and farther between. There's less and less of it, but imagine all of it being gone, completely gone. You don't have to imagine it, you can read it in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6-12. through 12. And on a global scale, for those that are left behind, 2 Thessalonians 2, and the deception that comes upon the whole world, God even permits it, directs for it to happen. It says, you know now what restrains him, so that in his time he will be revealed. Antichrist, if he's alive on the planet today, cannot unveil himself until the bride is gone. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The restrainer is both a what and a he. And that's the Holy Spirit, both in a neuter as a spirit and a he as a person in the Godhead. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all, not just a lot, not just a whole lot, all power and signs and false wonders. Remember, restraint is lifted. What is Satan permitted to do in these circumstances? Whatever he wants to do. The dragon will have more power than he's ever had in the history of the, of the universe. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, for the perishing ones, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. If they did not get saved in the church age, in other words, if they rejected the gospel before the rapture, they will not get saved after the rapture. Because they did not receive a love of the truth so as to be saved. Well, there it is. And so... In uh, Jeremiah's day, in Isaiah's day, this is what Israel was going through. The northern kingdom had already been swept away. The southern kingdom was on the verge of being swept away. And leading up to that, we find increased apostasy within Jerusalem. We find a remnant of believers that are being preserved, either through physical death or ultimately captivity. And uh, God's plan unfolds. God then taunts these children in verses 11 through 13. The Lord taunts the idolatrous culture as he invites those idols to do something on behalf of their worshipers, their devotees. All right. Verses 11 through 13 here of Isaiah 57. And there is such a tongue-in-cheek sarcasm here. This is the Lord saying, all right, you were trusting in these guys? Let them save you. Yeah, you serve Moloch? See if Moloch can bail you out of this one. Of whom were you worried and fearful when you lied and did not remember me, nor give me a thought? Was I not silent even for a long time? So you do not fear me. Here's this question. And they've got actually the wrong kind of fear. What feeds their apostasy, what feeds their idolatry at first is, uh, is a shame of who Yahweh is. 
Think about the shame of not naming the name of Christ, even though he purchased your redemption. But you fear men more than you fear God. And so rather than be diminished in the eyes of men, you deny the Lord. You turn into Peter saying, oh, I don't know him. I don't know the man. And you end up denying the Lord because you fear man instead of fearing God. All right? I tell you, Dan and anybody else, (laughs) you're going to go into the ministry someday, you better not fear men more than you fear God. And here we see it. Verse 12 says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds. (laughs) God himself will list all of your righteousness and none of it's going to measure up. They will not profit you. I find it uh, amusing in a sad kind of way. But the unbelievers that go to the great white throne, they got a long laundry list of stuff they think counts for something. And Lord, Lord, we did this. And Lord, Lord, we did that. And Lord, Lord, okay? And what's so pathetically amusing about that, or amusingly pathetic, what's so ironic in that episode, the crowd who says, Lord, Lord, and has this long list of things they're trying to use to, to get them to heaven, they've already been in hell. They've already been in hell for at least a thousand years, probably a lot longer, because the great white throne doesn't happen until the end of the millennium. And that's when death and Hades give up the, and the sea give up the dead that are within them. Death and Hades are even given up into the lake of fire. And so everybody that stands at the great white throne judgment saying, Lord, Lord, and when Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, they're going to get thrown into the lake of fire at that point, but they've already been in hell. They've already been where the rich man went in Luke 15. They've already been in the place of torment. They've already been in the burning flame of hell. And yet they still are clinging to some righteousness of their own that they can claim. Having rejected the righteousness of Jesus Christ by grace through faith. So I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. (laughs) You know? I mean, you godless Greeks, you got an entire pantheon. You got Zeus and Apollo and Hermes and, and Aphrodite, and you got all, you I mean, you got a whole entire pantheon of gods. Let them cooperate and work together. They're still not going to deliver you because you've rejected the one true God. So when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you, but the wind will carry all of them up, and a breath will take them all away. He who takes refuge in me will inherit the land and will possess my holy mountain. How many Christians do you know, they say they name the name of Christ, but their idol is the almighty dollar? <laughs> what a pathetic idol. You talk about something that inflates and deflates and devaluates and, and, and goes up with the wind. This fiat currency we have that disguises itself as money. All right. You're going to make that an idol? Are you kidding me? But he who takes refuge in me will inherit the land, will possess my holy mountain. A couple of principles under this section. First of all, the wrong kind of fear will hinder the right kind of fear. The wrong kind of fear hinders the right kind of fear. If you fear men, if you have a a fear of what people think or what people say, then uh, it's going to hinder the right kind of fear. If you have the right kind of fear, by the way, that will also hinder the wrong kind of fear. If you fear the Lord, that's a powerful motivation that keeps you from fearing men. The Lord is my trust. Whom shall I fear? If God is for me, who shall be against me? 
claim the promises, have the right kind of fear. Uh, Isaiah fifty-seven eleven. Uh, you know, of whom were you worried and fearful? You were afraid of those guys. Fear me. It's a concept that uh, we had a few weeks ago in chapter fifty-one. I don't know that I stressed it that week, but um, verses twelve and thirteen of Isaiah fifty-one. He says, I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and the son of man who is made like grass? I am who I am and who are you and who are you afraid of? That doesn't make any sense. (laughs) Okay. That you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. You think I can't handle your issues? Look what I've already done. That you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor? He's just mocking them, saying, this makes no sense. Why are you afraid of those guys? Why are you afraid of that? Why are you fearing for the future? Jesus Christ controls the future. He controls all history. Psalm 27 and verse 1. This is probably a favorite for uh, a lot of folks. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? And it goes on. I mean, most of this psalm is along that vein. You've got evildoers around you. You've got adversaries everywhere. There's a whole host that encamps against you. Are you surrounded by a host? That's a pretty big army. Okay? I don't know if it's probably larger than a regiment or a battalion. Anyway, a host encamps against me. Well, who cares? Yahweh Elohim is the Lord of hosts. (laughs) So he's on your side. All right, there's Psalm 27. Proverbs 29, 25. Solomon adapted this concept and gets put into Proverbs. Right? Am I wrong? There it is. The fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. So what are you going to do? Trust in man or trust in the Lord? One will tear you down. Think about people that are trusting in politicians, and then they vote for them, and then they're all excited when they make it into office, and then they're heartbroken because their trust was in man. Okay? Yeah, there you go. 1 Samuel 15, 24. I love that. Let's spend the whole hour on that. David and Goliath, right? And what are you trusting in? Even before that, though, chapter 15 and verse 24. Even before that, you have uh, King Saul expressing the lack of faith that David exemplifies. You know, if he'd had victory here, it would have been David killing Goliath. It would have been Saul killing Goliath instead of David. But here's Saul making excuses. And uh, this is, uh, anytime somebody wants to trust in politicians, this might be a nice chapter to come to. Because he was disobeying. And Saul, and the prophet shows up to say, Saul, why have you disobeyed? And he's denying it. Verse 13, Saul says, uh, uh, Blessed are you of the Lord. I've carried out the command of the Lord. No, you haven't. Samuel says, Well, then what is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? 
You are told to kill everything that breathes. Why do I hear these sheep? Why do I hear these oxen? Well, well, we only brought them out so we could sacrifice them. We brought them out to make offerings with them. We're trying to be religious here. No, it's not true. You're a liar and you're lying to the Lord. You were told to utterly destroy the Amalekites and you have disobeyed. He said, I did obey. Verse 20, Saul said to Samuel, I did obey. You ever have a child convince you that they did obey? I did what you told me. No, you didn't. Maybe part of it, but you didn't do all of it. And now you're making excuses for the other part of it. And so um, then in verse 24, finally then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord in your words. Now that almost seems like a real confession until he gets to the because, all right? If you're doing a 1 John 1, 9 confession and you're confessing your sins, don't put a because in there. Don't try to defend yourself or explain what you were doing. Just say, Lord, I did this. Restore me to fellowship, okay? I have sinned, indeed transgressed the commandment of the Lord because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. Samuel said, no, I'm not going to return with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Then look at this. What a visual picture. Samuel turned to go and Saul seized the edge of his robe and it tore. What a picture. Think, well, that's coincidental. (laughs) No, God designed this whole thing to be a picture because, hey, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor who is better than you. Do you think those words hurt? (laughs) here's King Saul convincing himself he's the best man out there. You know, legalists will always do that. But here's someone better than you. The reason why is because he's humble. He's a man after God's own heart. He loves the Lord and he's not afraid of men. He fears the Lord. And he's going to go kill that giant you're all scared of. So the wrong kind of fear hinders the right kind of fear. Also understand human relative righteousness is worthless in God's sight. Relative human righteousness. Colonel Theme used to draw this out as minus R, remember? The, the relative righteousness of humanity and angelity. Human relative righteousness is worthless in God's sight. I don't care if you're going to compare Mother Teresa on one end of the spectrum and Genghis Khan on the other. Human relative righteousness is all worthless in God's sight. The best human is still a sinner in Adam. All of our righteous deeds are as a filthy garment. Not only do we have it here, of course, the more famous passage besides Isaiah 57, 12 is Isaiah 64, 6. So stay tuned in about seven weeks. Okay. But in Isaiah 57, 12, he says, I'll list out all your righteousness. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds but they will not profit you. You know, all of your righteousness put together plus five bucks gets you a venti caramel macchiato. It's worthless. It's worthless. All of your righteousness, I'll declare it all. They will not profit you. 64.6, your righteousness is as menstrual rags. All of us have become like one who is unclean. Looking forward to this. This is a great chapter. Uh, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, heaven did come down. 
the virgin conceived and bore a son and God became man and dwelt among us. Good thing, because we needed it. We couldn't uh, earn it. We couldn't deserve it. We couldn't save ourselves. All of us, verse 6, have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. The menstrual rags of the ancient world. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name who arouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the power of our iniquities. Thank God that when Adam sinned, God so graciously and mercifully condemned all of humanity in Adam. He didn't condemn me for my sins or you for your sins. He condemned all of Adamic humanity in the lost estate that is Adam. The sin of the world. The wages of sin, singular, is death. Not the things I've done. Not the things you've done. It's not the stuff you've done that's going to send you to hell. Thankfully, of course, the Lord himself will arouse himself and do what we cannot do. So there's a good thing coming up there in that chapter. Titus 3, 5, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. All right, another verse that I think we all know. Titus 3, 5. Finally, the last portion of this chapter, verses 14 through 21. And again, we got this parallel with Matthew 5, and I wonder how much of Isaiah was on the Lord's heart when he got there for the Sermon on the Mount. When he started to preach in the Beatitudes, when he started to preach in that message of the kingdom, you understand Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the, is the constitution of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. The, the Sermon on the Mount is all about the coming kingdom. And I think Isaiah was heavy on his heart, including Isaiah 57, our, our chapter here this morning. It'd be fun to take a month and just tear apart all the parallels between Isaiah and uh, Matthew. Isaiah 57, it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstacle out of the way of my people. For this says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place and also with a contrite and lowly of spirit. See, God's exaltation doesn't mean we have to puff ourselves up to deserve it. It means we need to humble ourselves so that he brings us to his high and exalted place in order to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry, for the spirit will grow faint before me in the breath of those whom I have made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry and struck him, In other words, Israel has to go through tribulation. They have to experience God's wrath, but that prepares them for God's mercy. Um, I hid my face and was angry, and he went on turning away in their way of his heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and to his mourners. He saves Israel despite themselves, creating the praise of the lips Peace, peace to him who is far, to him who is near, says the Lord. I will heal him. You know, here's the Prince of Peace waiting to provide peace to his people. And here's his people looking for peace any other way imaginable except from him. They'll even sign contracts with Satan as long as he promises them peace. (laughs) They'll bargain with Antichrist as long as he promises them peace. 
They'll give land to Muslim terrorists as long as they promise them peace. And then every single time it blows up on them, okay? Literally. And then, do they learn from that? No, they keep crying out, peace, peace. But there is no peace. Not until they accept the Prince of Peace. They have to look upon Him whom they pierced. They have to call upon the God of their salvation, the the Christ whom they crucified. The wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up refuse and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no peace for the wicked. I've preached funerals where I've told people, I have no comfort for you. None. If you don't have eternal life in Jesus Christ, I have no words of comfort for you whatsoever. Your loved one has departed planet Earth. Mortality is a brutal thing. All right? It is a brutal thing. Well, we need to wrap this up, so let me just give you these, and then we'll close in prayer. Peace, peace is the cry of Israel, but it must be granted on God's terms. Look at 1 Thessalonians 5.3. Give you that as homework. There is no peace for the wicked, even though they promise it. Oh, they're constantly promising it. The peace they promise is a lie. The peace they promise it has strings attached. That's why Jesus said, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, okay? but my peace I give to you. We'll have more of those lies coming up in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel. They keep promising peace, but they're just like whitewashed walls. You slap a coat of paint on there, yep, it's good. It's just whitewash. It's not good. The battering ram is going to hit it. That wall is going to fall. Well, out of time. Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for this message. I thank you for this book. As, as alive and powerful as it is and how applicable it was for Isaiah's day and age, for his generation, Father. And here we see it in our own culture. We see Christians that are too busy for Bible class and studying to show themselves approved. We see uh, Christians, born-again believers, that simply approach their faith in terms of moralistic, therapeutic deism. Well, as long as I'm happy, as long as I feel good, as long as my problems are diminished or go away, then I'm okay. It's not about the problems of this life. It's about glorifying your Son. And I pray that we would be about that business. I thank you for these brothers and sisters that don't show up to have their ears tickled. They want to be fed. They want to be taught. They want to be reproved, rebuked, exhorted with great patience and instruction. And I pray that takes place here, uh, has just concluded in this present hour, and will continue to take place in the, in the coming classes that you have prepared. I do thank you for your faithfulness, Father, and I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.